if somebody asks you to do something and you're not sure whether you can do it, say yes and then learn how to do it later. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Hey ladies, it's time to put your badass boss babe hat on. Head over to femcanic.com's resource page and create your personal listing and your business listing if you have one of those too. No cost to you at all, just shameless self-promotion. Talent recruiters for jobs, radio, and TV gigs have leveraged this page to discover talent. Come on ladies. It's time to get your self-promotion on. Remember, femcanic.com, resource tab at the top, and click the Yes, I'm a Badass Woman. Martina Kwan is in the driver's seat today. She is the world's only female Chinese-European race car driver that is a three-time champion in her Porsche 911. She set track records in each of her Porsche classes. She spent her childhood in Asia, Middle East, and Europe, but credits many of her character-shaping experiences from living in war-torn Beirut, Lebanon between the ages of 8 and 10. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Martina Kwan in the hot seat or driver's seat today. How are you doing today, Martina? I feel great. Thank you so much for having me on, Jamie. Hey, you know, I'll call it out here. Thank you for being flexible, for allowing me to move this back in a little over an hour so that I could go attend my daughter's track meet. You are wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate that. Truly appreciate it. My daughter was shocked to see me still there because I told her I would have to leave early because I have an interview. And she looked up and she just pointed at me. I'm like, I know. (laughs) So thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. One mother to another. So, Martina, I love this question so much, and I always look forward to see where this question takes me and my guests. What was that moment where you're like, this is the path I want to go down? Because you did not start down racing in automotive. Let's say you're in high school and you're getting ready to figure out, what am I going to be when I grow up? And maybe it makes sense to start there. To give the listeners an idea of the twists and turns all careers can have. And it's a beautiful story. What started the fire? I started college in Switzerland and then I moved to Miami. And, you know, I was kind of just uh, regularly thinking, okay, I'm going to become a PhD in psychology. I sort of had different ideas of what I wanted to, to do. And then I did business. And then I decided that, you know, we had moved around a lot as as kids all over the world. And I decided hospitality management was what I wanted to do. So that's what my first master's degree is in. And then I figured... Wait, pause. I want people to catch what you just said. Your first master's degree. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Go ahead. 
Yeah, and then I did an internship with KPMG in Miami, and it was in the hospitality department, which I loved. And I figured, why not become an accountant and sort of bypass all the layers and the hotels and go directly to controllers? So I decided to get my second master's in accounting. Wow. I love that stuff. That's great. And if it's okay with you, I'd actually like to go back even a little further. Because in the pre-interview, we chatted a little bit about this. I like the fact that you shared that right there because it's like a fast forward. But do you mind going back to your childhood and bringing the listeners along where your foundation started? So I was born in Hong Kong. My parents are German and Chinese. And when I was eight, we moved to Beirut because my stepfather was Lebanese and, you know, he wanted to go back to his home country. And at first it was this incredible place you know, uh, the second country that I'd lived in. I was on the Mediterranean, gorgeous Mediterranean Sea. One hour inland, you could go skiing. It was this beautiful, very tropical environment. My sister and I went to the German school, and it was just a wonderful place to live until the war started. So the civil war started a few months after we moved. And at first, you know, we really didn't feel the effects But after about a month, we couldn't go to school anymore. We weren't able to pass through the different neighborhoods. You know, it was a Christian-Muslim conflict. We weren't able to go to school, so we'd roller skate down to the German embassy every day and really become these sort of tomboyish kids, you know, jumping stairs on our roller skates to pick up our homework. We would go climb trees at the American University of Beirut. But things really changed when day turned to night. And it was then that the fighting started. It was a time where we were close to the border of where the conflict was. So it was sort of the epicenter. And 25,000 fighters would descend upon our neighborhood nightly on sort of rudimentary flatbed trucks. And they would fire machine guns and rockets. It would start really with the machine guns starting to fire in the distance. And then you'd hear them get closer and closer. And it was at that point, you know, I would share my room with my older sister, Veronica, that I would start getting afraid. I would get out of my bed and crawl into her bed just for comfort. And we would wait for the nightly sirens to go off. And at that point, we would move to our ground floor corridor and all the neighbors would come down and we would sit huddled in the corridor facing each other. We would hear the machine gun fire. We would hear the rockets and the bombs, and then there's a time when a rocket and a bomb is fired to where is it going to explode? And those were really the most terrifying moments because you're not sure where the rocket is going to fire to. Is it going to hit our building? Are we going to be the next ones to die? So it was really a pretty frightening experience. And then ironically, when it became light again, the daytime happened, we were like, doop to do let's go roller skate. Let's go do things that I would never allow my eight to 10 year old kids do, you know, sort of have the independence that we did during this wartime. But we also, my sister and I have um, still a collection of empty bullet shells and bomb shrapnel that we collected that my mom still has stashed away in her basement in Germany, which I actually like to go look at and smell and see all the different bullets that we collected every time we go to Germany. Wow. I couldn't 
imagine. You were eight years old. Now, how long were you in Beirut then? How many years? We were there for two years, and most of the time, it was during wartime. And then what was the final straw where your folks were like, we're done? I mean, it really was getting so bad. It was bad from the beginning, but it just got worse and worse. And, you know, there were buildings. I remember my my grandparents from Hong Kong came to stay at one of the Holiday Inns, which is actually a five-star property in the Middle East. A few months after they left, it was bombed out. And it's actually a very famous building. It's, it's still um, not under ownership, and you could still see the effects of, of the war from the 70s. And so it really got so bad that, you know, the infrastructure was crumbling and it was really difficult to sort of move around. And we decided we had to leave, leave the country, leave everything behind. And I remember us going to the airport through gun checkpoint. We flew to Germany where my mom is from. And luckily her family and our German friends really helped us start afresh furniture and clothing and and towels and and different things. And we were hoping to go back, but the war lasted for many more years. So we were never able to go back. Wow. So you were about 10 years old when Mm -hmm. you went to Germany then. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think of my children being in that situation. And then I think about Mm -hmm. being like your parents, how scary that must have been for them and just wanting to protect you and your sister. There's, it's you and your sister, right? There's just two of you. And my younger sister. My younger sister was much younger, so she was still a toddler. Wow. That got you to Germany. Now, how long were you in Germany then? We were there for two to three years. Two to three years. So that would have taken you to teenager. Mm-hmm. And then where did you go from there? We went to Bahrain. So also in the Middle East, in the Arabian Gulf. And that was a great year. I mean, I really loved riding the Arabian horses there. And it was such a different environment. It was uh, the first American school that I went to. We had gone to German school until then. And it was this international environment of people from all over the world. And so it really brought a new perspective to things. And it was a wonderful time. We really enjoyed it there. We were there for a year then. I want to walk the listeners through this because when you say you've been all around the world, I mean, to put that really in perspective, right? So that was 13 to 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Where did you go next? We moved to Amsterdam, which was a big culture shock. In Bahrain, we were chaperoned. You know, it was very strict. And then we went to Amsterdam. Don't they have like the red light district and stuff? Like it's pretty risque, right? Yeah, it was so fascinating, actually, (laughs) walking through the red light district, like, wow, this stuff exists, (laughs) you know, it was really interesting. And also they had um, pot and hashish was legal at the time, which we had never experienced before. So again, from an extremely sheltered environment to Amsterdam. So you were a teenager at that time, right? Ooh, boy, what was that like? Good Lord, I could only imagine moving there and at that age. Wow, what did your parents do? Like, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. It, like, you want to talk about in what you're describing, the culture shock. How did your parents handle that? They have three girls. Well, we did do sports. So my older sister and I did uh, varsity, volleyball, and basketball. And so a lot of that entailed traveling around Europe and, you know, playing our school versus other schools, other international schools. 
So that was one component. But of course, they couldn't keep our curiosity away from, you know, <laughs> trying some things that we probably shouldn't have, but everyone does. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I mean, that's kid figuring themselves out. That's right. Now, how long were you in Amsterdam? We were there for about a year, and then we moved to Hamburg, my mom's hometown again, where we lived before, after the war. So you're about 16 years old then? Yeah. Give or take. Mm -hmm. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Now, this is the other thing that pops into my mind, because here in the U.S., and I think of schooling, like there's testing and different things you have to be in school. There's like this criteria. Now, I know the same exists in Europe as well, but you are all over the place. How did you keep up with like schoolwork and stuff and like stay on track with all that? Because it's not like you were <laughs> behind. You ended up going to college and getting master's degrees and all this stuff. So yeah, well, first of all, when you move around a lot, one of the priorities is making mm -hmm. new friends. And so, you know, having done sport was pretty important and you make automatic friends. So doing the varsity, you know, basketball and volleyball, that continued in Hamburg. And it was interesting because we would go and play my old school, Amsterdam. And so we'd keep seeing the same people. We'd go to Dusseldorf and different places. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't always easy to focus on school. It was quite difficult. It was the International Baccalaureate, which then allows you to fast forward and get a number of credits that typically uh, here in America you wouldn't be able to get for, for college. But yeah, I graduated with a decent GPA. And then I really became focused when I moved to Switzerland to start college, that's when I became serious about getting good grades. Now, why Switzerland? I didn't want to move to the States. It was too far. I wanted to stay in Europe. I loved Europe. It's a great place. Yeah. The school was so small. I mean, we <laughs> had maybe 200 people total all around from all around the world. It was located in a ski resort. It was the American College of Switzerland. Made some of the best friends that I've made there. It was an incredible experience. We got to travel every weekend, you know, to Milan, to Geneva, to Lausanne, to Oktoberfest in Munich. I mean, it was really such a cultural experience. Of course, skiing as well. Wow. Now, educate me here. I'm making an assumption here. But in Europe, they have undergrad degrees and then like graduate or master's degree. Yeah. Is that still the same? So I think you mentioned you got your undergrad in hospitality. Well, I got my Associate of Arts from Switzerland. Got it. And then that's when I transferred to Miami, University of Miami, for a bachelor in psychology with a minor in philosophy. And that's in Florida. That's in Florida. Okay. I know Miami's in Florida, but there's there's actually a <laughs> Miami of Ohio. That's right. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, there is, but Miami, Florida. Gotcha. Ooh, that was a big move. Huge move. Big culture shock. Huge culture shock for me. What made you decide to come to the States then? Because you love Europe. Why come to the States? Well, typically you either stay in Europe to study, go to England, like my younger sister Gina studied in England. My older sister Veronica, uh, that I shared my room with in Beirut, she moved to Loyola Marymount here in California. Ooh, she's a smarty pants, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the reasons I wanted to go to Miami is, oddly enough, I, I wanted my own identity. I, I didn't want to be too close. I wanted to really develop my own self. Mm -hmm. And that's why I moved 3,000 miles away from my sister. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, you said location, but I mean, you could have gone anywhere on the East Coast and still had that distance. What drew you to Miami? 
Was it a major or warm weather? The weather, yeah. I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. And then that's where you got your first master's degree, correct? Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm piecing this together. So you, when you moved to Miami, how old were you then, uh, approximately? Nineteen. I graduated high school at seventeen, and I was nineteen. You got your associates in Switzerland, and then came over to the states. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, listeners, when she said she traveled the world, <laughs> she's been all over the world. That's literal. That's not. I went for, you know, a, a two-week vacation somewhere. It's You went there and lived. It was immersion really in the culture in every place you've been. So you got your degree. All along the way, in all these experiences, did it ever occur to you you would eventually be a race car driver? Never. And this is what I want to emphasize to listeners is that there are so many women that kind of close their mind to that possibility If their dad wasn't a mechanic or if a family member wasn't in it, and that does not have to be the case at all. And that's kind of why I'm spending a little bit of time walking people through this. You didn't grow up that way. Just immersion into cars and racing. If someone would have told you you would have been a race car driver, you probably would have laughed at him and like, you're crazy. Exactly. And many years later, I still laughed at them. So here you are, 19 years old. Then you go and get your master's. What happens after you get your master's, your first master's? So meanwhile, I had my practical training with KPMG, which I love. So one of my goals was to work with the best accounting firms in the world, the best consulting firms. And KPMG was one of them. And FIU was one of the top hotel schools. And the partner at KPMG offered to sponsor me for the green card. And I said, you know what, I could accept that. And it was an honor because it wasn't offered to everyone. Mm -hmm. But I feel I would have a better career if I continued and got a master of science in accounting. So I applied to Bentley University in Waltham, Massachusetts. And that's the route I took. And then I started my career in New York City after I received that master's with KPMG in audit. In audit. Oh, you were an auditor. Yeah. Ooh, people are scared of auditors. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's interesting. One of my clients was um, Infinity Broadcasting, which is the Howard Stern show. Yeah. You know, you, you do meet a lot of people as an auditor. It's, it's very interesting. You have to go to different clients and do their audits in different industry. It was, you know, banking, it was real estate, it was hospitality, media. And As a woman, at the time, I had to wear a skirt suit. It couldn't be a pantsuit, was not allowed, and had to wear pantyhose. So there was a very strict dress code. Was that a company policy, Martina? It was a company policy. And if I think back to it, it it sounds a little unbelievable, but not to be able to wear pants. But (laughs) at the time, that was the case. And the other thing that was really interesting to me is walking into the controller's office. Usually the controller was a male. Mm -hmm. Usually as a woman, I had to prove myself. And then they were always, you know, shocked and surprised, you know, how smart you are. And, but you had to prove yourself. That was a thing you had to do as a woman. And another thing that is why I'm so fired up about inspiring other women is that the women who were in managerial positions and higher positions at KPMG were not supportive of the new women. Isn't that mind-boggling? Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Yep. So that's something that I've always remembered. I, I will never forget 
that these women were very guarded of their territory and didn't want to help and inspire these other women to do their best. Yes. Which we did our best anyway, but it was interesting to see. So that's something I wish to change here in, with what I'm doing now. It's about embracing all women. It's about putting everyone on the pedestal and there is room for everyone. Yes. There's no need to be territorial. There's no need to be guarded. Preach, girl. I am with you. Let's look back, grab the hands of the next generation and bring them up with us. That's right. This isn't about competition. This is about let's do this together. And we each have our superpower. It's not taking anything from anyone else. Let's help each other out. Exactly. Absolutely. If we fast forward a little bit, you were doing accounting. Where did you go from there? I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I loved accounting. I had my goal of working for KPMG, Pricewaterhouse, and Lehman Brothers on Wall Street. And then I became an entrepreneur. So the first business was a 3D animation business in New York City. That was a pretty lucrative business. That's where I won a couple of uh, Emmys for production management and producing and four telly awards. So that was one chapter of my life. How did you get into that? Because your college education doesn't really point to that Mm -hmm. per se, right? Mm -hmm. Did you just stumble upon it? Like, (laughs) eh, I'm going to try this. (laughs) No, I was in a relationship. We started the company together. Gotcha. And so I was the business end. Got it. Okay, I'm, I'm with you now. And how long did you do that? Oh, gosh, I can't even remember off the top of my head um, for a number of years. Gotcha. And that was in New York City. So you're still in New York City because you're not in New York City now. You're in California now. Where did life take you? Were your daughters born by this time? No, they weren't. So the next chapter was starting a company where we designed and manufactured luxury outdoor furniture. And that's with my ex-husband. So this is all in New York City. We saw that there was a need for a lack of luxury outdoor furniture. There are a couple of very top, superb companies. Mm -hmm. And our goal was to compete with them, which we did. And so won nine furniture design awards. It's Neoteric Luxury Outdoor Collection. Did furniture for the King of Morocco. Uh, a number of celebrities, many five-star properties, including Four Seasons in Azerbaijan and Abu Dhabi and, you know, all over the world. So that was great. The time when I had my two daughters, they were born in 2004 and 2006 and lived in Connecticut for a while away from the city and uh, realized that I was not a stay-at-home mom. I can't be. (laughs) I hear you, sister. (laughs) I want to talk just a little bit about that because there's empowerment with that and just accepting that it doesn't mean you're a bad mother if you're not a stay-at-home mm-hmm. mom. I am not stay-at-home mom material. <laughs> never have been, never will be, and it doesn't make me any less of a mother. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, it's a process that I think a lot of women go through in trying to navigate that. Mm-hmm. Was that the case for you where it's like, I'm going to try this out because this is what I think I'm supposed to do? Or I guess, why did you decide to be a stay-at-home mom and test that out? Well, in 2004, when I had Zoe, I worked until two weeks before she was born. And I had every intention of going back off to the maternity leave. And this was your guys's furniture business? That actually hadn't started yet. This was when I was uh, with Ian Schrager Hotels. I was the controller of the Paramount Hotel. 
and the director of accounting of the Hudson Hotel. I was always a type A personality, 24-7, worked 80 hours a week, and really had that work mentality and really didn't think that I would want to stay at home. Mm -hmm. But somehow after she was born, after Zoe was born, and when the maternity leave was coming to an end, I said, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try and stay at home. And it was okay. It was, you know, made some nice friends in Connecticut. But inside, I wasn't fulfilled. And I just felt like I was losing my identity as a woman because I didn't want to just be known as mom. I was always a businesswoman and a business owner, a business founder. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, Martina. How long were you a stay-at-home mom? It was for about a year and a half. And then the idea started with the outdoor furniture business and started right when Coco was born, right before that, around 2005. Right on. So you really just ended up launching into your new business then is what you dove headfirst into. That's right. Because having a business affords you some luxuries and time that you wouldn't have as a full-time worker, especially in New York City, where the expectation is for you to work 60 to 80 hours a week. It's crazy. And it's funny because I'm spending a little bit of time in each one of these kind of steps because if I'm a listener, I'm like, okay, I'm still not seeing the race car driver thing. <laughs> so in, in bringing this along, and I know one of the key things that you want the listeners to understand is that you can do anything you want, any time you want. Mm-hmm. It's not time boxed. Like if you don't have it figured out when you're 21, then you can't compete at the highest level, right? You know what I'm saying? So here you are, you had your children, you started a business, kind of time box that. How many years did that happen? Were you in that kind of phase? So from 2005 until 2018 was Neoteric Luxury. So 13 years. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that 13 years, where was Martina? Emotionally, mentally, physically? Well, way before the 13 years. (laughs) I was starting to feel, we moved to Miami Beach. And it was incredible living there. It was um, actually a great spot to build a business. Did a lot of trade shows, uh, got a lot of recognition, grew the company, won awards, got a lot of five-star projects. But at the same time, starting in 2011, I really started feeling unhappy. Unhappy in my relationship, my marriage. Unhappy that... I had lost myself. I was working 24-7. I was the one doing the quality control. So it was sort of burning the end on both sides. Number one, the office, and then staying up at night to deal with our factory in Indonesia. And, you know, doing the quality control and communicating with them via phone and via emails to make sure that things, the cogwheels were still turning. So I was starting to feel some burnout already in 2011. And in 2013, we moved from Miami Beach to Los Angeles. At the same time, we kept warehouse and showroom in Miami and had the same here in Los Angeles. I had done some research. You know, one of the most impactful things for a company is to move a company across. 2013 to 16, honestly, were the three hardest years of my life, work-wise, but also I knew that my marriage was over. 
really, if I'm honest, from 2011. But as a mother of two younger girls at the time, I felt like it was my obligation to try and make things work, to try counseling. And even though I knew deep down it wasn't getting anywhere, it was really a total waste of money to do counseling. <laughs> because if the person's not right for you, they're not right for you. Mm-hmm. But at same time, you have an obligation to stay and and see if you can make it work for the kid's sake. And I think so many people do that. But at some point, you really feel I felt like I had lost myself. And I was starting to feel really empty. I wanted to do stuff for myself. The only time I had for myself was when I was in my Porsche 911, driving up Mulholland Drive or on PCH, listening to loud drum and bass music or house music. That was my favorite time because it was my time. When did you get your Porsche 911? What year? I got it in 2011 in Miami. And you trailered it from, or maybe you drove it, I don't know, from Miami to LA. Yeah, trailered it. Now, what drew you to that car? Why did you pick that car? I mean, it was kind of my dream car. Again, we really didn't grow up with cars. We grew up in cities where you don't really drive and lived in New York City where you don't really drive. So cars weren't really an important part. But when we moved to Miami, I said, you know what, let me try BMW, let me try a Mercedes. But the car I really wanted was the Porsche 911. And I loved the way it sounded. You know, I'm kind of more like a guy that way. When you turn the engine on, it's like, oh, I love that sound. (laughs) What about the smell? There's a smell to it, too. The smell as well. But just the German engineering, you know, there's such perfection in the engineering. So it was a 2009 base model 911 Carrera. And I love the car, especially when we moved from Miami, because Miami is completely flat. Mm -hmm. There's no mountains, there's no difference in topography. So when we moved here to California, it was like, wow, these roads, the ocean, going up to the mountains, you know, Lake Arrowhead, there are pine trees. It was, it's so fascinating, the different topographies that you have here in Southern California, including the desert where most of the racetracks are. So in 2011, you got your Porsche 911. Do you still have that car? Is that the car you race? Now you said it was a base model. Did you doctor it up at all? Well, yeah, it's now a complete race car, non-street legal (laughs) (laughs) through Vision Motorsports. (laughs) I had to ask because some people may not connect the dots. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about that. 2011, you got the 911. It was a base model. What happened next? So that was your meditation time. That's what it sounds like, right? You you get in your car, you turn on your music, and can you think of any of your favorite artists that you would listen to when you, those meditation moments when that was kind of your escape in your car? Well, there's a house DJ who is DJ Lars Berenroth. So he's like deep house music. So he's one of my favorite podcasts. Uh Uh-huh. And then a lot of different liquid drum and bass uh, types of DJs. Liquid drumming. What is that? It's a specific type of drum and bass. It's more melodic than just dun, 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 dun. You know, it's not uh-huh. just beating. It's liquid. It's hard to explain. I'm totally looking that up after this. With <laughs> yeah. drumming. I am fascinated. I am totally looking that up, Martina. And- I may add a link into the the summary so others who want to know what liquid drumming is, we we can uh, educate ourselves here. 
And then I may ask you for a link for the DJ that you just mentioned. Okay. Go check that out. So I have this vision in my head. You're in your 9-11. You are totally jamming and in your space, driving your car. At this time, you know your marriage is done, but you're still trying, trying to figure you out, mm-hmm. right? Figure yourself out. And I see you just driving. So where do you go between 2011 in 2016, what happens in that time frame? So the three worst years of my life happened in that time frame, but also started sponsoring in 2011. Neoteric Luxury sponsored uh, a track event at Pikes Peak International Raceway. Can you explain to people Pikes Peak? Well, there's Pikes Peak. There's two races. There's a racetrack, which is sort of like Auto Club Speedway here in California. And there's the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, which is different. That's every summer. Yes. And so every year in April, I would go to this track day that we sponsored uh, with Benjamin West out in Colorado. And it was became my favorite event of the year. Of all the trade shows, of all the things that we sponsored, it really spoke to my heart. I loved lining up for the different cars. At first, I was a little bit of a snob. I would only line up for the manual cars. <laughs> now, when you say line up, what do you mean? Oh, so you would go and you were able to drive the car. You could choose the car that you wanted to drive. As a sponsor. Yeah, which race car you wanted to drive. So they had different ones like Pontiac Solstices and different cars, but they also brought special cars. They usually bring like a GT3. They've had an i8 there. They also had Corvette, which at first I didn't really feel like driving, but when I finally did because it was automatic, Incredible, really fun. So I just really enjoyed that event. I enjoyed meeting the people there, but most importantly, I enjoyed the cars. And I think I really started becoming interested in cars at that place. And the uh, chief driving instructor there mentioned that he thought he wanted to make me a champion. Let me ask a clarifying question here. Those track days, like, were you a competing driver at that point? Or is it one of those things you're a sponsor and we're going to let you take a spin and Just have fun. Yeah, just have fun. I was a total beginner. Gotcha. This was, you know, anyone, um, whether they were hospitality interior designers or architects, those were the clients. And then there were the sponsors, and we were the luxury outdoor furniture sponsor. So, yeah, we we got to try the cars. So it was really um, my first experience with driving a car on the racetrack. Now, explain the racetrack, because there are so many different types of races, and just to kind of bring people along, so your track day was what kind of track? So Pikes Peak International Raceway, it's an oval, but there's also an interior, similar to Auto Club Speedway here, which is called a roval. So you go around the oval, and then you go into the interior, and there are a number of different turns. Mm-hmm. And then you come back out on the other side to go on the front straight. Really fun. Really incredible. So it's, it's like road racing, kind of. Yes, that's what it is. Gotcha. Okay. That was really your first taste, mm-hmm. so to speak, of racing. How many years were you guys a sponsor? Or how many track days did you have? Till about 16 or 17. Is it once per year? Or? Yeah, once per year. So about three, three track days, once per year. At that point, would you say that's when you caught the bug? Oh, yeah. Um, A little bit. I mean, I remember one year, and I actually, of course, love traveling alone. I remember flying into Denver on purpose because I wanted to rent, you know, on Turo, the app. So I rented a Cayman. 
<laughs> and drove it down to the racetrack. It was really fun until it hit a snowstorm. <laughs> okay. Wow. I, I'm just processing this here. Three track days, and you had mentioned at one of those track days, someone said that they want to make you a champion. Yeah, the chief driving instructor there. And I just looked at him and said, don't be ridiculous. I mean, I'm a mom and I'm a business owner. Why would I want to become a race car driver? That's just a ludicrous idea. No. (laughs) Flew back to California. And then... This was in Colorado? In Colorado. And then, you know, ever since I moved, when I was in Miami, I was a PCA member in Miami. What's PCA, just so folks know? Uh, Porsche Club of America. It's one of the Porsche clubs, and they have branches all over. So it's a great organization. They have different branches. San Diego here, LA, I belong to the LA one here. But so I wanted to transfer my membership. I transferred to PCLA, which actually does really fantastic things like horseback riding and driving and canyon drives and breakfast and things, but not really racetrack. So I I was researching on the internet every day, trying to find an organization that went to the racetrack that was Porsche focused and finally found the Porsche Owners Club in 2015 and went to my first track day. What I'll refer to as official track day. Official track day. It's not that you were a sponsor. This was you seeking it out to actually go and compete. Yeah. Is this like your first competition kind of? I mean, it was fun still, but. Well, it was my first official track day. I I still had no idea what I wanted to do with it, but I just thought it was really fun and very freeing to get up at four in the morning and watch the sun rise as I drove to the racetrack, which was Willow Springs, Streets of Willow. So yeah, very sentimental value of Streets of Willow and Willow Springs. So this is 2015. Mm -hmm. Now at this point, had you done any um, modifications to your car? Oh no, not at all. I was just going every so often, you know, maybe a couple of track days in 15 and then a couple more in 16. Couldn't really go much because I went to Dubai and Abu Dhabi four times in 2016. But things started changing when I turned 50 in 2016. I was just about ready to ask you to bring the listeners along. You attended your first track day, not as a sponsor, but where you sought it out to take your car and race your car. How old were you? 49. Ladies. (laughs) Right, Martina? Mm -hmm. Like, if you are breathing and you are not happy and you still draw breath, anything is possible. You just have to decide. And you are living proof of that, my friend. That's right. You have to decide. And the decision came slowly. I remember in the spring when I turned 50, sitting with my friend Jenny um, in my bedroom. We were doing vision boards and we were tearing out things from magazines. I recommend anyone to do those. Vision boards are so powerful. Incredible. And so suddenly I tear out randomly, female racer. And I say, oh gosh, again, I'm just blowing it off. That's ridiculous. I'm a business owner and I'm a mom. What do I want to become a race car driver for? But I put it on my board. And here we are. (laughs) When you visualize something, that's what I wanted to say to you uh, ladies as well. Visualization is so powerful. You have to visualize what you want to achieve. 
I used it when I was in Beirut when those bombs were falling and I needed to get away. I escaped through visualization. I escaped through daydreaming about what could I achieve? What could I do? Envision something that's a better place than you are now. Envision something that you think is impossible. Like when I put that female race on that, said to myself, that's impossible. But slowly your brain starts changing and starts believing it's possible, right? You believe, you start believing. So that was the number one clue. And then Dwayne DeMent, who was the chief driving instructor of the Porsche Owners Club, randomly sent me a picture of a racist clinic that Porsche Owners Club had done with all females. There were six females in the picture. Again, I was like, why is he sending this to me? I'm a mom and I'm a business owner. I was still sort of in that mindset. But by this time, I was going on my last trip to Dubai of the year in the fall of 2016. I had my vision board that said female racer. I was going to some track days and I had that picture of other women who had done it before me. And so I flew off to Dubai and there was nothing to set up yet. The container hasn't arrived. Sitting in my hotel room and I'm thinking, what can I do today? And I had lost myself so much, I'm actually going to cry, that I didn't know what I wanted to do because I didn't know who I was anymore. And so then I started thinking, I said, you know, every place I've gone to, every vacation that I've gone to, the thing that I want to do is horseback ride anywhere in the world, Caribbean, Asia, no matter where, I want a horseback ride. So I said, you know what, I'm going to get a taxi and I'm going to go to the desert. I found a stable with Arabian horses. I went out there and I got on an Arabian horse at sunset. And I'm going to cry again, but that's the moment that I remember who I was. How liberating. I just got goosebumps, Martina. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's about finding yourself again. You know, it's not too late to remember who you were. And one of the best ways is to do something that you loved as a child. So doing that activity or horseback riding, which really doesn't relate to car racing, really brought back the feelings of me as a 13 year old when I used to ride in Bahrain. That was so freeing. That was me. That was my personality before I had to change it for everyone else, before I had to go to work, before I had to put on the pretenses of society's expectations, before I was put into a box of how I should behave, how I should talk, how I should act. And losing all that throughout the marriage, that moment, I said, forget it. I'm done with this marriage. I'm divorcing him as soon as I get back. I'm going to become a race car driver at the age of 50. And I named my, my car Firehorse, which is the year <laughs> that I was born. When you came back from that trip, and I, I remember you sharing part of that story with me in the pre-interview where you were on the horse mm -hmm. and I think you said that you were watching the sunset and it just like this feelings and thoughts and everything just washed mm -hmm. over you what a powerful moment and just absolute clarity after mm -hmm. that for you it was less about what should I do and you just knew exactly mm -hmm. what you wanted to do and you gave yourself grace yeah to do it I want to take a step back and help the listeners understand what a vision board is and how to do one. Now, conceptually, I'm sure a lot of people know kind of what it is, but can you spend a little bit of time like walking them through that? So if they wanted to do a vision board, they could at least get a start 
on how to do it? Vision boards are so important. So number one is just setting a goal won't make it happen, right? You have to talk about it. You have to look at it. You have to see it. And so a vision board is something that's visual. So either you can go to Staples and buy a cardboard uh, paper, sort of get uh, glue, tear out pages from magazines. I like to do it random. So you have a bunch of different magazines, which might not be possible right now. But I used to love to go to the newsstand and, and just get different magazines, tear them out, and then find things that really hit you. Words, amounts you want to make per month. What are your dreams and goals? Is there a house you want to live in? Is it in the countryside? Do you want to have horses? Is it going to be on a farm? What do you want to envision for your future? Because it's not enough to just sort of randomly have it in your head. It's really important to visualize. And that's what I was saying about daydreaming in Beirut. I daydream with my Barbies while after a night of bombing, I would sit there and just daydream and have my Ken and Barbie and the riding stable. And I would dream about riding out, trail riding into this beautiful, peaceful forest. A few years later in Germany, that's exactly what I did. I became a horseback rider and I was riding in those peaceful forests. So envisioning it, seeing it, playing with it, talking about it, that's what matters. Having a vision board is wonderful to have different goals. You can also put quotes, quotes that speak to you, that you like, that inspire you. What is your work ethic? What do you want to achieve in the different areas in spirituality? What do you want to achieve with your, your family if you have children? So incorporating all aspects of you, but also incorporating aspects of yourself. It's not about the family. It's about you and what you want to achieve. The thing with a lot of women in our 40s and 50s is that many have been in a relationship where your initial dreams from childhood, from early 20s, from early 30s were squashed in the relationship because you were expected to act and behave a certain way that wasn't who you are. So on your vision board, make sure that you incorporate things. What did you used to be good at? Were you like a crochet champion? Did you like scrapbooking? Were you great at tennis, at softball? Whatever it is, try and think of those things and incorporate them on your vision board. So it happens again. I strongly, strongly recommend everyone doing one. It is such a powerful experience. And just listening to you talk about it, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, hey, I'm going to do that with my kids. I want to do that with my kids. Now, I would be doing my own for me. And what a great model for my children to show as a woman, I have my own vision too. Mm -hmm. And I'm more than just your mom. I am a multidimensional person. And one dimension of me is your mother. Mm -hmm. And I'm all these other things too. What a beautiful thing. So you had almost like an out-of-body experience. You get back, you follow through with your divorce, and you start your path down becoming a race car driver in 2016, correct? Yeah. So I get back in the fall, and starting in November of 2016, I went every month to the Porsche Owners Club, and I started competing in 17, won that championship, 
in the stock class. Then I modified my car slightly in 2018, won the M4 championship. And then in 2019, won the GT4 championship. So it was all about setting those goals and having them on the vision board. But the thing about goals that I also wanted to mention is that you have to break it down further. You can't just have this gigantic goal on the vision board. That, that's the end goal. But what do you need to do in the meantime to accomplish it? And in terms of being a race car driver, it means winning first place consistently at every event. So you have to do more for that. You have to train, you have to practice, you have to run mental exercises through your mind in order to get to that level. So breaking down a big goal into smaller achievable daily activities or weekly activities to achieve them. Wow. So in your first year, you were getting podium yes. places. Pretty much all first places. Yes. Were these all women that you were racing against? Because there's there's going to be some, they're like, oh, we, she was just racing against other women. Oh, no, not at all. It was all men. Were you typically the only female driver? Yes. How were you received? Especially if you were beaten up on them. <laughs> well, it was funny. I actually have not really had any negative experiences with with snide comments. I mean, I'm sure some have been made behind my back, which is human nature. But in front of me, everyone's been really great. And so I had competitors in my class and they would joke at the end of the day. One guy would say, oh, I beat every guy today, but he didn't beat the girl. I was faster than all the guys today, but he wasn't faster than the girl. So that was quite funny. Yeah, that's funny. That's a great sense of humor around that. That's cool. I just want the listeners to process that. You didn't just compete. You won. And you didn't just place. You were first in a lot of races. And I imagine you got the attention of a lot of people. You know, as I said, pretty competitive. So I wasn't just happy with first places. I wanted track records. <laughs> so that was the goal every year as well, to earn different track records. Now, were you able to capture some of those? Oh, yeah. A lot of them. Most of them. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. So what's your top speed of your car? What's the fastest you've got in your car? It's tough. You know, people always ask about the speed. And so my car now is in the GT4 category. So I've actually taken horsepower out. Mm -hmm. So it's only about 300 horsepower. I would say 150 something in that car. And in the Celine that I drove semi-professionally, it was over 170. What was that like? Oh, unbelievable. So much fun. Much more powerful than my car and, and turbocharged. Crazy good. So I want to talk about your experience with the Celine a little bit because that is an amazing story. And what I really respect about you, Martina, is that your willingness to explore. And what I mean is not geographically, right, but introspective, really digging in and expanding your awareness. And I really believe that's your secret sauce of you being a champion. Yes, it's the competitiveness. To get to next level, it's not out there. It's not somewhere out around us. It's not even a coach teaching you something. That next level, that pinnacle level, is all about looking inward and figuring that next step out for yourself. And you did that. But can you share your experience? I imagine when they first came to you and like, hey, do you want to drive this? It, it's, it was excitement. It's like, wow, what an honor. And, you know, semi-professional. 
it's a next level for you, right? But it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. So when they approached me, I was so honored and flattered because I was a relative newcomer. Yes, I had won a couple of championships, but I was a relative newcomer in racing. But I kept in mind Richard Branson's quote, which is, if somebody asks you to do something and you're not sure whether you can do it, say yes and then learn how to do it later. Martina, say that again. Women need to hear that. Will you please repeat that saying again? So if somebody comes to you and says, can you do something? And even if you're not sure at that moment whether you can do it, but you know you could learn how to do it, you say yes and then learn to deliver later. And that's what I did. Say yes. And and see, that's where women get caught up. Mm-hmm. We have this sticky floor syndrome where if we're not 80% sure, we, we won't move forward. We get stuck until we're 80% sure that we can do it or we sometimes you need to just Go, say yes and then figure it out, right? Yep. That's how men, a lot of men do it. They are only 40% sure they can do it, but they'll say yes anyway. <laughs> say yes. I love it. Keep going, Martina. And what was incredible, and again, I feel so honored and blessed to have had this experience, is that it was essentially a $500,000 free ride that they were offering me. And that doesn't happen to most people. And so, again, thank you, Celine. It was an incredible experience. So I said, yes, totally confident, like no problem. I can do this. I can do anything. I can do anything at any age. That's what I truly believe. Until the first time I got in the car at Thermal and I turned the engine on and it wasn't even on the racetrack. It was in a back parking lot where a number of us drivers, we had to get in and just drive around just to, to feel the car, to hear the car. Yeah, I was in my race suit. I put my helmet on. I get in, put the seatbelts on, and I turn on the car, and I'm like, whoa, what is the sound? What is the sound of this car? And I had no idea why I felt so paralyzed. And again, I am totally normally this fearless person that can do anything. But at that moment, I felt paralyzed. And it took everything I had to drive through that parking lot. And honestly, I ran over some cones because I was so blinded with fear. But I sort of acted all nonchalant when I got out of the car, like (laughs) nothing happened. (laughs) I got this. And that's the other thing. When you're around males, you kind of have to pretend I got this. So I did. But the bottom line is that car freaked me out. And I wasn't sure why. And in the meantime, I was driving the car invited to drive in the Olympic Stadium in Beijing. It was so hot and humid on top of the fear that I had of driving the car. It almost made me pass out. (laughs) But I did it. Those folks who don't race, I mean, road racing type style, you guys just have the windows down, right? And so it's not like you have AC or anything. And you have a racing suit on and helmet. I mean, talk about needing to be hydrated if you're in hot weather. Yeah. I mean, goodness gracious. So just to put that in perspective for people. So when you say humid and stuff, it's not like your windows are up and you have AC blaring. (laughs) Whatever it is outside, you're feeling on the inside plus more because of the heat of the engine and everything else. So yeah, sitting in that 130 degree car and but it was really one of the highlights of my life. It was incredible going there. I'm half Chinese. I was born in Hong Kong. And 
It was really incredible going back as a female race car driver to China and performing in front of 25,000 people. And a lot of women, Chinese women, came up to me in the hotel as on wow. the stadium floor and were inspired because I'm a Quan and I spoke Chinese on stage. Did you really? <laughs> I did. I did. I, I said the Celine slogan in Chinese. Now, do you speak Chinese fluently? I don't. I spoke Cantonese when I was a child, uh-huh. and I was learning Mandarin uh, for a while, but it's such a challenging language. You knew enough just to be able to yeah. gotcha. What was that like having those women come up to you? It was really nice because my goal is to inspire women, and there are very few Asian women drivers to begin with. Mm-hmm. And and so it was wonderful. And I remember in the hotel, Chinese boy, the mom was waiting with a Chinese boy for me to come back <laughs> and in the lobby. And I was walking with um, one of the American uh, female drivers. And so they came up to us and they didn't want to talk to her. They were kind of shooing her away because they wanted to talk to Martina Kwan. Oh, it was really funny and take pictures and he was waiting the whole night Aww. and he was so fascinated and it, it, you know it's it's a good feeling to inspire young people especially absolutely oh wow so why that event what made that event so pivotal for you it was just again so special being in china and meanwhile i was still petrified of the car and didn't have a clue why. So when I got back to the United States, um, we also drove, uh, raced the car in Portland. And the next race was going to be at the end of August in Watkins Glen. I've only experienced racetracks here in the West. They're desert racetracks. You don't have trees, you don't have grass. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So I actually bought a simulator and I practiced with no air conditioning, with my helmet on. My hands were sore from practicing so much. But I thought it was important to practice in my full suit and just sweat as if it were the real car. Mm -hmm. So really simulating the driving. And on August 15th, before Watkins Glen, we had a test day at Buttonwillow. And I woke up in the morning and I finally realized what was making me so afraid of the car. I said to myself, I know what it is now. It's something that I haven't heard in over 40 years. What it was is the hissing and popping sounds of the turbocharged engine, which my car doesn't sound like that. Those hissing and popping sounds reminded me of the machine gun fire, the rockets, bombs, and explosions that went off over 40 years ago when I was a child in Beirut. Wild. And so realizing that, I pulled over on the highway. It, it's a two hour drive from here to Button Willow. And I pulled over and I looked on my iPad and I said, you know what, I need to find those sounds of war. I need to find the real sounds of warfare. I found a video and for one hour at full volume, I listened to bombs, explosions, machine gun fire. In your car while you're driving there? In my car while I'm driving there. Wow. As tears were streaming down my face, remembering the little girl that I was, remembering the girl that was so afraid that she had to sleep in her sister's bed every night for comfort. And it was something I had not listened to in over 40 years. And so that's one of my suggestions is you need to lift the rug up and deal with it. Deal with the fears. Look at them. Lift up the rug and take a good hard stare at what's making you afraid. 
I did that. I listened for an hour. And by the time I got to Buttonwillow, I was able to get into the race car. I had a completely different relationship to it. I was able to get in it and drive it like my Porsche 911 and actually went on to win second place at Watkins Glen. Wow. What was that like? Like that moment, like you just described, you were driving, listening to it, and it took you back to that little girl that was scared and went and crawled in bed with her older sister because she was terrified. And then you listened to that for an hour straight. Was that like a freeing moment for you? What was that like? Oh, yeah. I knew I had to deal with it. You know, PTSD is not something you can just simply erase. And I never even knew I had it. I completely, my family swept things under the rug and it was like, deal with it. It's not such a big deal. Get on with your life. So, okay, we did. And nothing until that Celine at Thermal, when I turned on that engine, that started the thoughts, that started the fear. Those fears that I always had but didn't realize I had came up. And I knew I had to deal with it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to drive that car. And I'm so competitive that I was like, by God, I'm going to get over this fear now. And that's why I forced myself to listen to it. It's really those sounds and desensitizing yourself to listening to it over and over. It's like, oh, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. And I'm safe. It's not so bad. And more importantly, I'm safe. I'm safe. The car is not a bomb. It's not Mm -hmm. a rocket. The sounds of the rocket was the most scary thing. Mm -hmm. So every time that car made that that hissing sound, Mm -hmm. that's when it was like the visceral reaction. But after listening to that for an hour, I felt good. Wow. You have, is it technically retired from race car driving, taking a break? You think you'll get back into it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I love it so much. You co-founded an amazing driving school. I think I shared with you, I want to buy an RV and drive all over North America. And your driving school is one of the pit stops that I want to make. Uh, and actually have an opportunity to meet you in person as well, which would be super cool. That would be amazing. Will you tell us a little bit about this amazing driving school? So after winning the three championships and driving for Celine, I decided I want to start a racing school because, well, all racing schools are founded by males. Bon Juron or Skip Barber, the well-known ones, were all founded by males. And so I thought it was time, again, to inspire women, more women to to join us in the game, get more women to the racetrack, to feel comfortable and and not not intimidated. So Dwayne Dement and I co-founded DK Racing School. So D is Dement, K is Quan. It's a school that's located at Willow Springs International Raceway here in California, about 90 miles from LAX. And we have racing schools, precision driving schools. We offer teen car control clinics, private coaching, and semi-private coaching. It's really become my passion, and we're having our fifth precision driving school during COVID. We successfully opened and have been growing every time we've had one in September, in November, in January. really is so incredible for me to see not only the women, but the men who have come to our school, and we have a lot of repeat customers. And so we kind of go the extra yard where We make videos for our students ahead of time where we explain the corners of the racetrack, drive through the way it needs to be driven. 
we have a driver's meeting via Zoom. Our last one, we had Ross Bentley on explaining corners and braking. We have a detailed track walk. You know, Dwayne DeVent has over 100,000 laps at Willow Springs, for example. And then we have six 30-minute lead follow sessions with champion instructors. So we've had really incredible instructors join us, such as Rick Noop, who's a two-time Le Mans winner, Craig Stanton, who's had over 40 years and multiple IMSA wins, as well as Denise Longwell and Erin Fogel, Erin Fogel Racing. So it's just an incredible environment of small group coaching. And it's a really wonderful sense of camaraderie. You know, we provide the lunch and the dinner and we have snacks there and water so everyone can just focus on doing what they do on the racetrack. And it's such a feeling of camaraderie and friendship that it warms my heart. It's really been amazing to watch. What kind of feedback have you gotten from the women? So, so amazing. So there were two women at our last clinic who drove all the way from San Francisco with their partners. And all four of them, two couples, drove. And they loved it. Also, the other women, it's just been amazing to see. We've had so many repeat women. For example, Pam Suslin is coming back for the third time. And Jen has come back twice. And it's just so nice to see this. That's what makes my heart warm. What do you see in them? Is there like a growth or evolution being an owner and seeing them go through this process from day one to when they complete? the process. Have you noticed anything about the people that attended? Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody leaves without a gigantic grin on their face. And they're so much more confident. They've really learned things because that's number one, like you want to learn. You want to be better. Why be mediocre? Mm -hmm. You want to learn from the best the right way that it's done. So many people go to different track days and they're sort of bumbling around doing it the wrong way over and over. What's the point? That's a waste of tires. So to do it right, it's just so rewarding to see all these, I'm actually looking at a picture right now, all these men and women who've come with us mm -hmm. through this process, and some of them are getting so fired up. Pam is actually installing a roll bar and race seats. She's going to go the nine yards. Jen is interested in, in you know going further. Lauren Matthews actually has come several times. She was an SCCA racer. And now I think the passion has been reignited in her. It's wonderful. That's great. I love hearing that. What's next for Martina? Well, continuing with DK Racing School is one of my passions. I'm also a champion mindset coach for female coaches. Right now, I want to focus because one of the most important lessons in life is you need to focus. And so that's why I took a hiatus from racing. I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Now, you focus on your new ventures because that's the way you succeed. You focus. People like you, Martina, is always so much fun to watch on social media. And, and I'll tell you why. Because of what you just said. Not afraid to pivot and go in a different direction. So you never really know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing. And incredibly courageous because it is going against societal norms. And we need more of that. We need a lot more of that. So thank you for being you and digging in and making the hard decisions. The easy decision would have been to stay in a broken marriage because it was safe, because it is almost applauded and praised in our society and culture. 
but doing what your heart desires is what it is all about. And it's never too late. And finding the love of my life at the racetrack. You got a two for one deal. (laughs) (laughs) Most wonderful thing that's ever happened. So don't give up on love either because it can happen in your 50s like I am. I love it. I think on that note, this is the perfect time to launch into the red line round where we can learn a little more from you. What it is, it's just five rapid fire questions. There's no right or wrong answer to it. Whatever pops into your head is the right answer. Are you ready, Martina? Yeah. Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the industry? Dwayne DeMent. That was simple. And for those of you who haven't connected the dots, that is love as well. You got a two for one deal, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, just to make sure to bring people full circle, he is also the one that sent you the picture of the women. That's right. And told you years ago that you could be a champion driver. Yes. He saw it in you before you even saw it in yourself. Mm-hmm. Amazing, isn't it? Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you get stuck? You feel stuck. Oh, just Google. That's simple enough. What excites you most about what you do? Inspiring other people, especially women. Whoop, whoop. What is a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in this industry when you feel stuck, unsupported, or discouraged? Personal habit or practice. Don't say things before you've really thought about them. Don't ever say things in anger. You have to control your emotions especially as a woman in this industry. Unfortunately, that's the case. Wait, sleep on it. Take a while to really think about it. Write yourself a letter. Write all the angry things that you want to say in a letter and then tear that letter up. You've written a few letters? Not that many. That you you later tore up? (laughs) Some. (laughs) Good thing I did. I think that's, yeah, sound advice. And finally, what is your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in the motorsports industry? Just do it. Don't be afraid, even if you feel like you're going to be the only woman. We need you to pave the way. Don't be afraid because, look, look at Einstein. Look at all these inventors. They were lonely. They were sort of paving the way for us. Where would we be without them? So we need you to be courageous. If you ever want to talk, I'll help you through your, you know, wondering thoughts, but just do it. Be there for other women. Be the one to inspire the younger generation. We all need to be there to show others that we can do it, right? It's all about leading the way. When I hear you talk about the younger generation, I can't help but think about your children. What do they Mm -hmm. think about mom doing this? Because they were older, Right. When you decided to be a race car driver and by older, one was a teenager, right? Yeah. When you decided or just under that, what do they think about mom doing this? They think it's really cool. And, you know, they would say, pick me up in the GT3 RS. And all the kids thought I was the coolest mom (laughs) in school, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) It's funny. Have either of them taken an interest at all? No, which is actually... On the one hand, I I think it would be nice. On the other hand, do I really want to share my tire budget? (laughs) I don't think so. I love it. (laughs) Oh, 
that is outstanding. Martina, where and how can people connect with you and your racing school? So I'm at Martina Kwan, K-W-A-N, on Instagram. That's probably the best way to DM. And our racing school is at DK Racing School on Instagram. Facebook, Martina Kwan, but really those two ways also info at martinaquan.com or dkracingschool at gmail.com. Those are the best ways. Perfect. Martina, thank you so much for being willing to hop in the driver's seat and share your world and your story with the Femcanic community. And more importantly, thank you for inspiring women and keep driving. No pun intended. Thank you so much for having me. You're amazing. And I really enjoyed our pre-interview and our interview today. You're an amazing person. Thank you for doing this Femconic Garage. No, thank you, Martina, so much. I appreciate learning from you. And I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of this episode. So thank you for taking the time to do it. Thank you so much. I'm Martina Kwan. I'm the co-founder of DK Racing School, and I'm a champion mindset and business coach for my company, Daring to be Different, where I'm the CEO, and I'm a Funcanic. Lacey Trude is in the driver's seat next. It all started at 16 when her dad taught her how to change her oil and it evolved into her working as a service writer and then a service manager. In 2016, she started her racing career with SCCA in Alabama. She won the Novice Championship for that season, and eventually she crossed over from autocross to motorcycles, all while navigating congestive heart failure. Be sure to tune in next week for this amazing interview. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribes for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?